You're listening to Discovering Multifamily, where we discuss all educational topics in commercial real estate with an emphasis on multifamily apartment investing via syndication. And now your hosts, former NFL fullback Brian Leonard and Anthony Scandariato. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Discovering Multifamily Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Scandariato with Red Bank Properties. And today we have a great episode. We have Chad Griffiths joining us from Canada, actually. And he is an industrial real estate expert. He got into industrial real estate in 2005. And he's a broker with the Global Commercial Real Estate Company and a partner with the local firm. He's completed over 500 transactions with clients ranging from local companies to large institutional owners. And I'm proud to have him on here. He's got his SIOR and CCIM designations and his MBA. And a few years ago in 2014, he began building his own portfolio properties. And he was also just named as an industrial influencer by the popular uh, Globestreet.com. So very excited to have him here. And basically, what we're going to discuss on this show is why he's investing in industrial. We're not going to get into the Canada versus U.S. dynamics of it, but we're very curious on um, you know the pros and cons with industrial real estate. How is it different than multifamily? Um, I'd love to have that exposure to my audience as well. So uh, thanks for coming on, Chad. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Anthony. I, I'm excited to talk about anything related to industrial real estate. And before I started investing in industrial, I actually had a, a couple small multifamily properties, uh, a fourplex and a sixplex, uh, which I no longer have, but I can definitely talk about the differences between industrial and multifamily, or really any question about industrial at all. Excellent. Yeah. So love to hear your background on industrial, basically from how you started to where you are now and what you're focusing on, any specific niche in industrial, and any future trends you're seeing uh, with specific different types of industrial product as well. Yeah, so I actually got into real estate in 2004. I, okay. I had invested in a few properties with some friends, like like I mentioned, on some houses and some small multifamily, and really had the itch to just explore real estate as a career. So I ended up doing residential real estate for a year. That was in 2004. And then I moved over to a commercial real estate brokerage in 2005. Been at that same firm ever since. And it just so happened that that firm was predominantly focused in industrial real estate. So almost by accident, I stumbled into industrial real estate without even really knowing much about what it was. I mean, everyone's pretty familiar with residential and multifamily, but industrial, unless you have some experience, if you worked in a company that was in an industrial space or you had some direct knowledge of it, it almost seems to be this thing that works behind the scenes all the buildings are industrial parks, so people don't drive by them all that often. So I, I stumbled into it, uh, but I'm very glad that I did because over the last 16 or 17 years now, it's just become an, a passion of mine to learn everything I can about it. And I've, I've transitioned my portfolio to being 95% industrial real estate right now. So not only do I work in it every single day, I've got a lot of eggs in that basket. Excellent. So can you talk to us a little bit about you know, the net lease aspect of it or, um, you know, the management aspect of industrial and, you know, how is that different from, you know, your experience with apartment buildings and so on and so forth? Yeah. And I suspect that some, some of your listeners who own larger multifamily properties, they might have a, a manager doing that on their behalf. The smaller ones that we had, we self-managed my, my partners and I, whereas industrial real estate for the most part, 
you're going to have a lot longer leases. Like it's common to have a five to 10 year lease in industrial real estate. Whereas my experience in that multifamily realm is that you're, you're turning over tenants a lot more frequently. Like you turn them over every year, every two years. And then also in industrial real estate is you typically have property management and we've got property managers on, on our portfolio that we have right now. And that's also typically rolled into the operating costs that the tenant pays. So it's, it's a great arrangement where you have your net lease and that's the amount that the tenant's going to pay over the agreed upon term of the lease. So it could be a flat amount. They could pay $10 a square foot as an example for the whole term of the lease, or they could have escalations in there, perhaps going up a dollar a square foot, but that's agreed upon in advance. So they know what their net rent is going to be before before anything transpires. The operating costs, sometimes called the additional rent, that's all the costs involved in operating the building. So it's typically property taxes, building insurance, common area maintenance, like landscaping, my neck of the woods, snow removal is a big one. Uh, and then management fees is another one. So tenants will pay the, their proportionate share of these additional uh, costs or operating costs to, to run the building. And if that includes management fees, they're essentially paying the manager to represent you in the management of the building. So it's, it's a lot more predictable in terms of having long-term cash flow and knowing that any increases in those costs will actually be paid for by the tenant. Let's talk about the increases in, in the rental rates. And obviously we're recording this towards, you know, the latter of the, actually we're in the fourth quarter of 2021. And from what I've known, I mean, you've been in the industrial market for 15, 16 years, have rents, do rents ever revert back to the mean of where they were before? Um, obviously we're in a somewhat different market now coming out of the pandemic and, you know, we've seen a big uptick in e-commerce and distribution hubs, and occupancy rates and rental rates, basically at an all-time record and tighter vacancies. Uh, where do you see the rental rates happening, you know, growing? Obviously, you're investing in Canada, but just maybe just from a macro standpoint, um, yeah, you know, where do you fantastic see question. Yeah. Uh, and to answer maybe a question that, that I didn't answer before about what niche I'm in. So I'm in a market that has heavy oil and gas exposure. So we're, we're a lot more geared towards the manufacturing side, as opposed to like a lot of port cities like New York and Los Angeles are heavily geared towards, uh, warehousing. So I, I think that to, to your point about there being a regression to the mean, Absolutely. In my market where we move almost in lockstep with the underlying price of oil, we definitely saw as, as oil went from $100 a barrel to $30 a barrel, we definitely saw our market contract. Not, It didn't drop 70% by any means, but it definitely, it definitely dropped. And we've seen a slow recovery over the last seven years. And I'd say our market is very similar to Texas or other oil rich states in the US where that's dependent on that that commodity value. And with, and I checked oil this morning, actually, uh, WTI is $75 a barrel. So it's, it's actually increasing. And if I even saw something that Goldman Sachs, uh, readjusted their, uh, expectations that oil should get to $90 a barrel in the near future. So if that happens, I think we'll, we'll have seen our market peak call in 2014 to drop when oil dropped and have slowly recovered. We're probably at, where we were in 2014. Now we've, we've recovered, uh, but we haven't had any growth since 2014 either. It's just, it's just been a big dip. And, and from people that I talked to in Texas, it seems like that's a similar story that they're experiencing, but on the, on the warehousing side, 
that market is going crazy right now. Uh, vacancy rates in, in these big port cities like uh, New York, New Jersey, Los Angeles, their vacancy rate for industrial is sub 2%. So it's, it's very difficult to even find space. And when you do find that space, the rents have been increasing at a pretty rapid clip. And has that historically, when you talk about the latter, has that happened in, in history, you know, rents like for that specific asset class in those major metro areas, has, has it ever reverted back to the mean again at some point? Because like you said, if you're, you know, if you're in a market with heavy um, industry concentration and now you're, you're basically back where you were from in 2014 or are about to, like, how do you, are you looking at deals or I guess it's two questions. What are deals that, what type of risk profile do you like to acquire in your in your asset class? Because for, for me, just thinking high level, wouldn't it be hard to add value, especially if you know rents are going to come back? You know, it's always a site, it's always a cyclical um, type of asset class because it's tied to commodities. Um, how do you kind of price that risk adjusted return in your head when you're analyzing those deals? Yeah, and a great question as well, because uh, I, I would say industrial real estate over the past number of decades has actually been a very stable, slow gro- growing asset class. It almost moves in line with inflation because the, the market itself, the industrial market serves the consumer demand. Uh, the reason that we're seeing this warehouse uh, driven appetite right now is because of e-commerce and everything has to flow through a warehouse to get there. So it, it has moved historically pretty close to inflation, but over the last five or six years, we've seen a rampant increase in the demand for these warehouses. And it's gone to the point now where I don't, I don't know myself where I'd feel comfortable investing in, in a warehouse, which has seen this incredible growth. And you have to think that to your point, Anthony, like there's always cycles. I'd have to think that some of these tenants that have just entered into new lease agreements and call it a five or 10 year lease, they're doing this at the height of the market. And if there is a contraction in the economy, they're probably fine paying those rents today if they're making really good profits and it works for them. But if there is an economic downturn, how are those rents going to look in two or three years? And speculating, of course, because who knows, this could, this party could keep going on for another 10 years for all we know. Uh, but if there is a, a correction of some sort, I'd have to think that these companies that are locking in longer term leases at a premium right now could have a little bit of problems uh, down the road. So I, I'd be very reticent to look at any warehouses, specifically uh, of that subcategory of warehouses uh, that have recently had new tenants go in or lease extension signed at a premium. Where I do think that there's opportunity is still in that manufacturing side. And there, I think a lot of manufacturing in general is going to come back more stateside. And we could, we could get into that as well, but there's, there's a considerable amount of, of uh, delays right now in the supply chain, getting product from overseas into, into North America. Uh, the last study that I saw was there were 60 container ships that weren't able to dock outside of Los Angeles just because there's no capacity to handle it. So with all these delays of product getting into North America, I think that we might see more onshoring of manufacturing. And if that's the case, we might see a spike in manufacturing, whereas right now it's, it hasn't kept pace with the warehouse side. So my, my investment philosophy myself is I'm very risk adverse. I tend to look more at the downside risk as, as, as a 
is the most important thing that I evaluate. And then I get into how it could look on a you know 10 year perform. If I run a discounted cash flow analysis, what could that look like after a 10 year holding period, best case scenario. But I, before I even get to that, I want to look at what my downside risk is. And on the warehousing side, you could appreciate if, if these tenants are signing leases at, at a premium right now, the downside risk is that when these leases come up, you have to renew those tenants at a lower rate or you have to find a tenant at a lower rate. To me, that, that's a huge downside risk. And, and as, a, as a small investor that has my own capital invested, that, that scares me. If it's a big institutional fund or a big company that's doing it and it just becomes a rounding error, if there is a loss, they might think differently of it. But because I've got all my own capital in this, I want to have, I want to protect my capital before I start targeting big premiums on it. So that, that's, that's kind of how I look at it is the manufacturing side. If you're buying right and you're, we're trying to anticipate that there could be an increase in manufacturing sector and a lot of caveats in there as well, because none of that could actually manifest and could be a, could be a problem there. But at least if you're buying something that hasn't had that big spike in appreciation, you should should be able to control that risk a little bit better versus buying a warehouse where you're already buying at a massive premium. It's hard to imagine how much further that can go. Excellent. So when you're acquiring your industrial assets, are you typically, are your tenants, are you multi-tenanted or are you single tenant kind of net lease deals? Is that, you know, obviously the areas where you're invested in are concentrated in one industry for the most part. Uh, So do you have multiple tenants in the building to kind of, you know, spread that risk out. And obviously some of them have, let's say three year leases, some have 10, some have 15 even, um, you know, and how do you kind of just look at the above market? Like you mentioned above market rents, who's to say that they're above market right now, because we, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. And, you know, but some of these companies, they have three to I've seen high as 5% escalations per year and they mm-hmm. sign long-term leases um like you said how is that going to play out if they want to blow out the space come you know nine years down the road they give a year notice uh you know tenants got to you know landlords got to pay their ti's and their lc's so um how does that really affect your investment you know um is it going to be a repurposing or is industrial to like multifamily one of the highest and best uses right now at least in north america um i get just kind of how do you see how do you like you were talking a lot about risk. So um, just a little bit diving a little bit more into that. Yeah. And fascinating topic because there people have different opinions on this as well. Uh, but speaking solely for myself, I, I've got both. I've got some buildings that are multi-tenant and I've got a couple properties that are single tenant buildings. And to the best that I can, I try to stagger those leases so that I don't have a whole bunch coming up at the same time. Cause that adds another element of stress as well. If, if you're facing what, one tenant leaving versus first facing a few tenants leaving at the same time, that adds a different amount of stress. But I, I think the most important thing is to really just have some game plan for what happens if the space goes vacant. And, and I'm a big advocate of any property that I buy or that I, that I advise people on buying is to imagine the property being vacant today. Even if there's a five-year tenant in there or a long-term tenant, that's, perhaps it's a tenant that's been there for 30 years and they're on a year-to-year lease right now and you think that they're going to stay, I always envision that property being vacant first. Because then you have to go through the mental exercise of determining how leasable or saleable that property is if that tenant goes 
goes dark, if they go bankrupt, they do a midnight move, or they just don't renew. If you go through that exercise in advance, you're going to be much better prepared for any potential pitfalls. So that that would be what condition is the space in? How much money am I going to have to spend on TIs to get this up to a rentable level? Uh, are there any limitations to the building? In industrial real estate, one of the most important things to, to be cognizant of is that there can be physical limitations to that property, which might make it less desirable than something more modern. Perfect example that I use all the time is ceiling heights. Uh, in most older buildings, the kind of like, like 80s and 90s stock, uh, they built properties anywhere in the 18 to 22 foot clear ceiling heights, whereas modern buildings are 34, 36, some cases they're even 40 feet and higher. So you, you can appreciate that a company that puts a lot of racking in their space, if they can get an extra layer of racking or an extra two layers of racking, then they can start taking advantage of that cubic footage as opposed to just relying on the on the two-dimensional square footage. So th that's just one thing to be really aware of is, is if you are if you're considering a property and has 20 foot clear ceiling heights, what is the rest of the market? in comparison is the rest of the market all 20 feet or are there a lot of comparable properties at 34 feet and if they're roughly the same price and lease rate like if you're considering buying a property and let's say the tenant's paying ten dollars a square foot and you're looking at the market and modern buildings with higher ceiling heights are also ten dollars a square foot to me that's a problem that's something that i'd really want to dive into deeper and, and find out why and and again that just goes all back to protecting your downside risk which I think is is critical in an industrial more so than any other asset class. Uh, because it, it, residential, and, and Anthony, you're an expert in this field. You know this really well. If you've got a, a multifamily building, chances are that you're you're going to be able to find tenants for it, right? You might have to drop your rent a little bit per door, or you might have to make some adjustments. But if you've got uh, an apartment building in a good location, you're always going to be able to find tenants for it. Industrial is not the same. Uh, I've, I have one client that has an industrial property in a small town outside of our metro area. So it's about 20 minutes outside of our, our, our major market. And he, he's been struggling to find a tenant for two years now, just because it's a small town. It's an older industrial property. There's more options available if, uh, for roughly the same price with more amenities, uh, more uh, physical attractiveness to the building. They're newer, higher ceiling heights for roughly the same price. So how is this guy going to actually find a tenant when modern buildings are going for the same price? So that, that's why I think industrial real estate can be an amazing asset class. And, and there's a reason I've put all my eggs in that basket. Uh, but you also need to be very careful and cognizant of what can go wrong. Uh, and, and I probably sound a bit redundant, but that's protecting that downside risk. So you're talking a lot about downside risk, which I can appreciate. Can you talk a little bit about, and you kind of touched on it, but the replacement costs of some of the industrial assets um, that you're you're mentioning, and you know if how how is it possible that a same building within the same market, you know, basically another foot, maybe even two feet in some instances, have higher ceiling heights and still be at the same competitive rate as the one with lower, um, given you know where we are with you know inflated construction costs. I'm sure you're seeing it in Canada, and we're seeing it in the U.S. as well. Um, I, I've never seen that um, unless mm -hmm. industrials, you know, cheaper on a per square foot basis to build than multifamily. And, you know, it's not as amenitized and you have more open space. So how are, you know, developers and maybe this is more for a developer, but how are they kind of um, being competitive with the market 
but at the same time, watching their construction costs and making sure that they need to meet their yield to cost projections for their business plan. Well, I, I would say the first thing you need to check is is how hot that market is. And, and an easy metric is just vacancy rate. Like if you're in Los Angeles or New York right now, and you're looking at a sub 2% vacancy rate, it, it doesn't even matter. Like people just need space so badly that they're willing to pay whatever, whatever they need to pay to get it. And that's an exaggeration, of course, and they're not paying uh, whatever they have to, but it, in many cases, they're forced to pay what the landlord wants if they want to lease it. Otherwise they just don't get the space. So if you're in a really hot market, it changes from a market like mine, where we've got about a six and a half percent vacancy rate, which still isn't crazy in the, in the grand scheme of things, but we're coming off a market where we were 2% six or seven years ago. So I'd say the how hot the market is is the first variable to check, and then then just to see how comparable the properties actually are, uh, because there there could be a difference between two landlords. Let's say one owns a vintage '80s industrial property and one owns a newer modern. Uh, building, uh, they might be asking the same rate, but what actually happens uh, and what the deal actually looks like when all is said and done could be quite different. The landlord of the modern space might not have amortized in any build-out space for the office. Uh, they might, it might have just been on a peer as-is asking rate where any work that had to get done gets amortized into the lease rate. So then the face rate is actually a lot higher. And on the other side, an owner of an, an older industrial building might have given a lot of concessions. So they might have given free rent, they might have given huge TIs, any amount of inducements you can imagine to keep the face rate the same. But until you peel back the onion, you see actually what, what the two are. In the majority of cases, there still will be a noticeable spread between that old inventory and the new modern stuff. But it, it does really go back to functionality of the property. You might find a tenant that that can work with that property and it, maybe it's in a better location because a lot of that older industrial stock tends to be more condensed around the city core. Uh, it's not common. And I'm, I'm sure it's similar in your market, Anthony, is mine. It's not common to just be able to find like a five to 10 acre parcel of industrial land right outside the city core. So that a lot of times if people want to be in those areas for strategic purposes, they have no choice but to take that older modern stock. So it's, it's hard to generalize what exactly separates the two, but generally speaking, if you're the tenant of the property, you're going to have all the options on, on what you choose from and what you ultimately want to pay. But on the other side of the token is the landlord who's, who has the property. And I think it's incumbent on that landlord to at least just fully understand what that asset is and equally important what it isn't. Excellent. We got a lot of Peeling back the onion to do, and I'd love to do that on another episode with you. Chad, how can my audience find you, learn more about your company, learn more about industrial at you know real estate? How how can they do so? Uh, well, I started a YouTube channel on industrial real estate about a year ago. So when I first got into the business, uh, there wasn't very much available for industrial real estate, and I had to learn it all the hard way. Just digging everywhere I possibly could to find resources. So I thought I might be able to help that next generation of, of people that want to learn about the industry. So I, I think I've done about 70 videos now. Uh, I've interviewed a number of professionals across all different uh, fields, economists, bankers, lawyers, all to do with industrial real estate. And I've also done uh, a handful of videos myself. So if they just search uh, Chad Griffiths or even just industrial real estate on YouTube, I think I'm the only one that's regularly producing content on there. Excellent. I'm definitely going to check that out myself. And we'll have a link to Chad's YouTube channel and his social media platforms in our social media description. And if you liked what you heard and or saw today, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. So 
chat and my message can get out to a larger audience because that's just the way it works. So really appreciate your time for coming on chat today. And hopefully we'll have another conversation in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great questions. You're a natural podcast host. So I look forward to catching more of your episodes as well. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Anthony. All right.